All right. Take out your handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Take out your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you. And we will kick off a brand new series today entitled Practical Faithfulness. Uh, Today's message is entitled Set to Succeed. Uh, In this year of faithfulness, and that is our theme this year, I selected out two books that I thought would make that point most strongly, and the first one was the book of Hebrews. We wrapped that up. Pastor Ryan did an amazing job in wrapping up that series for me as I went on vacation. And in this year of faithfulness, we needed to get a few things right before we got to the idea of making changes. First thing was we have to figure out what God is like, and that's why we did the book of Hebrews. God is faithful. Jesus Christ is faithful. The word says that when we are saved, we are being made into his image. Therefore, we are to be faithful. So the way that it always works is who is God? What is my identity? And then how then ought I to change what I'm doing now to align with who I am in his eyes? So we did Hebrews first. Now we're going to do Corinthians. I taught 1 Corinthians back in 2006. Quick show of hands. How many of you were here in 2006? Raise your hands. All right. A little smattering here and there. It was recently on the radio. I apologize for that. It just happened to come up in the rotation that earlier this year we replayed that 2006 series. However, it is going to be different this time in a couple different ways. First of all, at that time, it was a 16-part series. This time, it is 25 at least. We will be breaking it down into greater detail that we can slow down a little bit and understand what God has for us because there is so much that will be demanded of us. That leads me to give you a warning. The warning is this. Take note of what church you walked into. Take note of what series we are involved in. I warn you now, I will get into your business. I will appear to be watching you via webcam. I will talk about personal things that are going on in your internal life. And you will wonder, why is this guy getting on my case so badly? Uh, I will be talking about things that are absolutely unacceptable in this church. We'll be talking about very controversial issues, such as church discipline. Nobody wants a whole... Uh, message on church discipline about how God brings the hammer down on Christians. However, we will be talking about all of that. We will be addressing issues like the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and going through a lot that is in some areas very controversial. Issues of head coverings and, and women in the church and things like that. All that's included in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we'll be addressing these one by one, but it will agitate you. It will irritate you. But we are here for the purpose of transformation. We are here to change. If you are interested merely in getting more information so you're better at Bible trivia, you might need to find somewhere else to go. Because that's not what this is about. You may know some of these verses. The question is, are you living some of these verses? 
If Jesus Christ adheres to what he says he will do, if he lives out the life that he says he will live, then we ought to as well. Therefore, we are going to be nailed to the wall about how we treat each other, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our children, and how we engage here at church in the workplace at play. So it's going to be a little bit crazy. It's going to be a little bit radical. But that's all right. I like it that way. Here we go. Uh, remember back earlier in the year, I had a team put a bunch of cards on every seat. And it said, where are you currently serving the kingdom of God? Do you remember that? There was a bunch of cards and then they kind of disappeared. Nobody knew what happened to them. Well, we've had them this whole time. I went through every single one of them. We had a team that was assessing them and putting them together. And we were reading them and, and looking at them. And... and the results were rather astonishing. We had just shy of 2,000 cards filled out. Now, is that everybody? No, it's not, but it's a pretty decent sampling of this congregation. That's quite a bit. And this is what we found. Out of the 1,957 that were filled out, less than half stated that we were serving somewhere, somewhere significant, 879. 656 of us were serving here in the church at Bridgeway. 223 were serving outside this church in some significant capacity. And I need to remind you of something. Our ministry model at Bridgeway allows for the fact that you get trained up here and there is absolutely nothing wrong with taking it outside the church and serving outside somewhere else. As a matter of fact, that's a beautiful thing. That you would be able to be trained up and excited and go out there and carry everything that you learn. Take it into other churches, taking it into the world, taking it into the prisons and the jails, taking it out into ministries. We want you to do that. That is valuable, right, and good. It does not have to be here. Do we need a significant number of people serving here to do what we do? Absolutely, and that's why we talk about it a lot. All right? But what was a little challenging for me was that 1,078 of us wrote that we were not serving anywhere. That's over half. That's a lot of us. 266 of you said that you were serving at home. I put a big question mark on you. And here's why. If you mean you're serving at home TV dinners, that is not legit. That is not significant serving. We need to understand what serving is and what serving isn't. If you mean, man, my kids are a drag, that is not significant. If, however, you believe, rightfully so, that God has called you, maybe with young children, that they are your primary mission field, that there's no way you have any free time to be able to serve in any other capacity because God has asked you to dig in and be the mom or the dad that you need to be, that you are now putting all your energies to raise up your children in a powerful way, providing for them, ministering to them, equipping them, then yes, that is more than legitimate. That is right and that is good. That is serving. We just need to understand what it is and what it isn't. 66 of us 
signed up and said, I'm not serving now, but I'd love to. Here's my name and number. And we got you plugged in. So, yeah, that was pretty amazing. But think about it. Almost a thousand of us that attended that weekend said we are not serving significantly the kingdom in any capacity. The question then goes back to us, why? Why are you not serving? I will guess, and we all know what happens when you assume, right? doesn't always go well. I would guess that you're going to say that you're too busy. I told you at the beginning of this year that we needed to tackle four major issues. One of them is the issue of busyness. It's destroying our lives. And it's completely destroying our ability to grow spiritually. If you are too busy doing significant things that God has called you to, I understand the struggle. If you are too busy just being busy, and quite frankly, you're too wiped out because your life is not designed in such a way as to be healthy, then we have a problem. But I want to talk to a segment of you that do not serve because you do not believe that you bring anything to the table. As a matter of fact, the entire message may well be for you. That you are the one that says, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any abilities. They don't need me out there. I mean, God can do it on his own. It's not like he's waiting for me to join up just to get something done. If you have any of those thoughts in your mind, I need you to hear this message very strongly. Because you are absolutely necessary. And you were gifted with the things that you're gifted with. You were designed in a unique fashion. And you are absolutely vital. How do we know that? Because you're here. God doesn't waste. He wouldn't have designed you, created you, allowed you to be here if there was no purpose for you. You are very purposeful. So what is serving and what is not? Serving is not doing hard things for God. That is not serving. We had a couple people say, you know, I'm serving. I'm going to a Bible study. That's not serving. You go, no, I don't like them. Oh, okay. Great. Fantastic. Uh, I understand it's difficult. Um, I know you're a small group. I agree with you. However, uh, I understand that it's challenging. And, and, And here's the thing. It's honoring to God. It's a good thing. It's the right thing. But do you understand small groups feed you? That's not serving. Serving is bringing benefit to someone else or the kingdom of God at your cost. That's serving. Are you serving somewhere significantly? Are you bringing benefit to other people? Just doing something difficult is not serving. Reading your Bible is not serving. It's good, but it's not serving. Dedicated prayer life is not serving unless you're an intercessor. You understand? Therefore, we need to figure out what serving is and what it's not so we can be about it. I will suggest to you that if you do not serve... You will grow discontent. You will nitpick yourself to death because all you have is you to dwell on. To serve makes sense of the gifting that you have. If you have incredible gifting and you're only looking as to how it will benefit you, you will probably not be thankful. But if you are out there using it with the kingdom of God, using it with other people, suddenly it seems valuable. Your life will make sense in community. And in serving. I have a little space on your notes there. 
for taking notes. So if you look at your handout sheet, I want you to do an exercise with me real quick. I want you to take out the pen that was in front of you or maybe was stolen by the people last night. I don't know. Uh, but if there's one, maybe steal it from somebody else. Uh, grab that pen and what you're going to do is I need you to start writing a list of abilities that you have. I want you to write down what you're good at. I want you to write down all the things that you're good at. As a matter of fact, the more you think about this, I would hope that you not only fill up each line, but that you would fill up the rest of the page. I want you to write what you're good at and you go, I'm not good at anything. That is not true. Let's start being a bit more creative Let's be thinking about this. For example, you're good at working on cars. Write it down because I'm not. I want you to write down, I'm good at crossword puzzles. Why? Because it's a certain way that your mind thinks that allows you to handle problem solving. I want you to write down what you're good at. Well, I'm good at gaming. Write it down. Oh, well, I'm good at this. I'm good at that. I'm good at watching TV. All right. There's a limit. (laughs) You want me to write down all kinds of things that you're good at. Now, now for some people, they think, well, I'm good at these things, but that was my old life. That was before I knew Jesus. For example, I had a pastor friend who was a drummer like me, played in, in uh, some rock bands and used it largely to uh, hook up with women. So he said when he got saved, he put it away, wanted nothing to do with it, stopped playing completely once he became a Christian. Well, that's a drag. I understand needing some space. I understand needing to re-rack. But completely setting aside an ability or a gifting because, it, what, it can't be redeemed? Uh, I was talking with Mike uh, the other day. Mike was involved with the Luis Palau Festival that came in. And I said, Mike, what was your favorite part about the festival? And he said, probably... The graffiti competition. Now, I don't know if you had a chance to go there or not, but Mike was largely responsible for bringing that team in. He talked with Shane Grammer, a local artist. He got together a number, I think it was maybe eight. I don't remember, Mike. Was it eight artists? Yep. Uh, Eight artists that came in, and what they are good at is tagging. They're good at graffiti work. Um, How many of them were Christians? Two were Christians. Six were non-believers. He had them come in and do a competition of a live graffiti artwork in front of everybody, and then they would kind of assess and name the winner. It was his favorite part. Once again, it creates some of the most beautiful artwork. One of those pieces is hanging in our youth room now. I don't think that before Jesus, they were necessarily using that for the kingdom of God. Can it be redeemed? Absolutely. Is it beautiful? I would suggest to you that some of the greatest artists in the world are graffiti artists and tattoo artists. They are the best. Can it be utilized for the kingdom of God? 100% it can. It is artwork. It is a gift. It is an ability that God has given us and we can use it to demonstrate his love. I want you to get creative. I want you to think about what it is that God has gifted you to do. What do you do for a job? You go, I hate my job. Doesn't matter. Are you good at it? If so, what can we do with that? Are you good at math? Are you good at science? What is it? Because every one of those abilities and gifts can be utilized for the kingdom of God. Why is this so important? I'm going to give you a challenge about this at the very end on that list. I want you to continue to add to it throughout the service. I want you to add to it after the service. 
But the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is why I believe this is so important for us to see. God has prepared his people to be faithful. God has prepared his people to be faithful. God wants to utilize Bridgeway Christian Church in this community and in this world to transform lives. And he has gifted us and equipped us and we have more than enough. We should be able to be limitless in our impact in this society with this many thousands of people that are going to one church. We should not be hindered or hampered. We should not be at half Mast or half percentage of involvement, we should be out there engaging using what God has given us. All right, good enough. Let's turn a corner. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, page 952 in the Bibles that are under the seats in front of you. If you have been with us for any length of time or launched a series with us, you know that I take a significant amount of time up front to talk about the context the history, the background. Why? Because whenever you open up the Bible and you read, especially the New Testament, especially letters, you're reading someone else's mail. They were already having a dialogue before the letter was sent. The letter is about specific issues. It's said with a local context in mind. It's wrapped in its history and historical context. If you do not understand about the time, the place, the reason, the mail doesn't make any sense. You, if our context is wrong, our application will be dismal. Everybody wants to read the Bible. What's it say for me? What do I need to know for me? Blah, blah, blah. We'll get to that. But you're going to make that completely in ignorance if you don't understand the context. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through this. Let's start out. Let's throw up a map if you could. Let's just talk about where we're at. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to a church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. So on the map right here, Greece starts at this corner, and it goes all the way down here. All right? This side is Greece. The other side is Turkey. All right? So Ephesus and all this, all over here, right? This whole area right in here is Turkey. Actually, Turkey's pretty big. Uh, Paul was born down here. Now, on this side, you'll notice that it goes down, and then all of a sudden there's this little bulb at the bottom called the Peloponnese. Corinth is right there where one waterway almost seems to touch the next waterway. Those of you on this side, let me point this out because it's crucial. Right here, all this is where the Greek Isles are, where you see all those pictures and want a vacation, right? Uh, right here, there is a waterway that comes in. Corinth is right here. And then the waterway comes in here. All the sailors want to go through this area. The problem is, is that there was no way to get through. And they tried. Everybody tried to create a canal there. Nero tried. A bunch of different people tried. Um, so they would have to sail around. The problem is, is right around the horn of that, your ship will be destroyed. So it was very costly, difficult to sail. Incredibly expensive and so they were always trying to figure out a way through it because of the location of Corinth It had the possibility of being the hub of trade and therefore it had the possibility of making tons of money Anytime you have a strategic location It's going to be wanted or sought after by everybody So it was destroyed a whole bunch of times. It was rebuilt a whole bunch of times Everybody wanted control of Corinth 
Now, it first got on the map in 1000 BC as far as significance. Now, it started, that area started way before that. Corinth is mentioned in Homer's Iliad. It's an ancient, ancient place. But classical Corinth really kicked off about 1000 BC. At one point, it was the largest city in the entire Roman Empire. In 146 BC, it was destroyed by the Romans only to be rebuilt 100 years later. In 46 BC, by Julius Caesar. 20 years later, under Caesar Augustus, it was shaped into a traditional Roman colony type city. And what that means is the entire city is designed around the agora, the marketplace. Inside the marketplace where everyone would buy and sell goods, right inside there was a center point called the Bema seat. If anybody remembers Jesus sitting on the judgment seat, that is the word Bema. And that's where you would stand up on a raised platform and address everybody and where they would hold certain legal counsel was at that Bema seat. I had an opportunity to go over here on a trip. A number of years back, got a chance to walk through Corinth, walk in the very marketplace that Paul walked through. Next week, we're going to have some photos to be able to show you what it looks like and have that prepared for you. By Paul's day, the estimated population was 250,000 people. Because they all wanted to go from one waterway to the next, they had to come up with an idea. They couldn't cut a canal for various reasons, so they decided to make an overland roadway. When it got to a narrow place of about five miles, they created a man by the name of Periander, created a road called the Holocross, the Dialkos. The Dialkos is a V-shaped road that you would take the ship, unload its cargo, lift it out of the water, put it on a rolling or dragging instrument, and then haul it across the land five miles, put it back in the water, and load it back up again. Now you would look and you'd go, that's ridiculous. Why would you want to do that? Because it's still cheaper and shorter, and it's safer. So that whole area was constantly used the other reason why this place was so wealthy is that it was just near only seven miles away from ismia ismia held the ismian games they were second only to the olympics so therefore you would have the mighty amazing uh, spectacles where they have all the best racers and boxers and wrestlers and everybody would come and every two years they had this huge deal and everybody would flood in and they would just make that place a mecca of partying and excitement and craziness and tons of cash would flow therefore when we talk about corinth i want you to think this it was extremely wealthy highly religious highly sexual and in general, just high. It had some of the greatest temples of all time. The temple to the god Apollos. The temple to the goddess Aphrodite. In that temple of Aphrodite, Strabo, an ancient historian, wrote that they had no less than 1,000 temple prostitutes that would fill the city. If your religion is hypersexualized. What happens to the non-religious? 
it, in all their marketplace, there was constant stations everywhere they've uncovered that were for beer and wine. So everybody would have an opportunity to be loaded. Here's what I need you to understand. It was a place of glitz, glamour, money, sexuality, and craziness. When you think Corinth, I want you to think Vegas. Because what it will do is it will immediately pop into your mind, what would it be like to plant a church in the heart or the strip of Las Vegas during its most hardcore time when Christianity was only 30 years old in existence? Everyone that was planted there, by the time they received this letter from Paul, the longest term Christian was only five years old. So now you have a whole church full of intense baby Christians in a Christianity that doesn't even have a lot of writings about it, and it's only 30 years into existence. I wonder why they had so much trouble. Paul launched this church on his second missionary journey around 51 AD. He comes into town after spending time in Athens, the great city of the best thinkers in the world. He comes down because his buddies hadn't arrived yet, so he's doing all the ministry solo. Arrives in Corinth and hears about a husband and wife couple that are brilliant in what they do. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. They too are tent makers just like he is. And this is a perfect place to set up shop because of the Ismian games. Everybody wants the tent coverings. They come in, buy new stuff. There was a lot of work to be done in the marketplaces. They could create tents. And so Paul hooks up with them. As they uncovered this area, they found that all the storefronts were about 15 by 15 by 8 feet tall. The owners would live on the top of it. So let's say that Priscilla and Aquila would live on the top of their shop. Down in the workroom with all the tools and all the different pieces to make tents would live Paul. He would live underneath in the shop. The shop would, they would work all long days. It was blue collar work. It was not highfalutin fancy. And remember, he's going into an area that's all about their knowledge and brilliance. And here he is making tents and doing ministry on the side. Well, sure enough, his buddies Timothy, Silas, they come and join him. Together, all of them plant a church there and start ministering like Paul always does to the Jewish people of the city. There was a Jewish contingent there. There was a worshiper of God, Titius Justice. He gets on board. Then the synagogue ruler, a man by the name of Crispus, they all have stupid names, I get it. Crispus gets saved. Can you imagine the leader of the Jewish synagogue in the town of which there was likely one main synagogue? He gets saved and turns to Christianity. Well, that starts irritating all kinds of problems. And sure enough, Paul starts getting an awful lot of heat. Paul is fearing for his life. He's worried about everything. And Jesus comes to him in a vision. All this is recorded in Acts 18. Jesus says this, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul stayed there and lived there for a year and a half. 
This was a precious place to him. But eventually, the Jews had enough. They go crazy on this guy. They grab Paul, drag him into the marketplace, throw him in front of the Bema seat, where Gallio, the proconsul of that time, and he only served one-year terms, so we know exactly in history when this occurred. They throw him before Gallio, the Roman leader of the time, and they said, you got to get rid of this guy. He's teaching us that we can worship without the law. He goes, wait, is this a religious thing? They're like, yeah, it's about the law. He's like, yeah, I don't care. Get out of my face. So Gallio throws it out. Well, everybody's angry and ticked off now. And it says, quote, in their anger, they all seized Sosthenes. The ruler of the synagogue, the next guy, and they beat him publicly in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. He doesn't care, but this guy just got tore apart to shreds. Paul stays for a little bit, does a little bit more ministry, then heads out and sends the second pastor, the great orator Apollos. So, first pastor of Corinth, Paul, second pastor of Corinth, Apollos, And eventually Paul's going to send Timothy. Corinth received some pretty powerful leaders to lead them. Did they need it? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. As a matter of fact, it is believed that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthian church. They wrote multiple letters to him. And here's how it went. After Paul set up the church, he went on his third missionary journey, and he was gone quite some time. While he's gone, he received news about how things were going, and it was not awesome. He then writes them a massive letter that was likely all about the issue of sexual immorality, because that was one of their biggest problems at the time. Remember, they're all in Las Vegas. So he writes them and says, you guys, your scenario that you're living in is so influencing the church, it's destroying you. We do not have that letter. In response back, Paul receives at least two letters. One says, hey, about that, we have some questions. And they wrote a whole list of questions in a letter. The other letter that arrives says, oh, by the way, we're not just sexually immoral, but we're all completely factioned. These people are following Apollos' lead. These people are all into you. These people are going, oh, I'm just a Jesus guy. And these people, everybody's splitting up. The whole church is splitting. Paul, it's a mess. In answer to those two letters, he wrote 1 Corinthians. That's the letter we're about to read right now. Remember, he's answering specific questions in a specific context. Here's how the rest of the story goes. Unfortunately, 1 Corinthians, as amazing as it is, did not have the impact that Paul wished that it would have. He hears that things continue to get worse. So he has what he deems as a painful visit. What that means is his dad came home and opened up a can on everybody. It means dad came home and lowered the hammer, tore everybody apart. What do you think you're doing? This is way out of line. Completely wipes them out in church discipline and then goes back on the road. 
When he goes back on the road, he writes him back a letter, and the letter he deemed the sorrowful letter, which is, man, you guys, sorry I had to get in your face like that. You know what? It shouldn't have had to go down like that. You should have did what I asked you to do in the first place, and we wouldn't have to go like that. But I'm sorry that I crushed your heart. It was totally necessary. Eventually, they turned it around. He hears good news and writes 2 Corinthians and says, well done. You guys are finally living the way that you should. All right? That is the full breakdown. Let's read the passage. We're only doing nine verses, so the remaining bits of our time here, the remaining 15 minutes, we will blow through here, all right? That was all intro. Here we go. We haven't got to the message yet. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Well, that's weird. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray for the word and then we'll tear it apart. Heavenly Father, we offer up our lives to you afresh and we ask that you would take, Lord, a light scope into our lives and a surgical knife and that you would excise out that which is displeasing to you. We ask, Lord, that you would transform us into your image more and more every day. Would you use this series, would you use your word that does not return void to change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So who wrote it? Paul. Who's Paul? Saul of Tarsus. This was a man that was the Jew of Jews, right? Everybody knows this guy. Do you realize that he almost wrote... 50% of the entire New Testament, outside of Jesus, as far as writing goes, nobody is more dominant and powerful in influence than Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. How did that happen? Do you remember his transformation? This is a guy that was a Pharisee. He was extreme in Judaism. If anybody was Orthodox, it was Paul. He'd walk into a synagogue and they'd say, Saul of Tarsus is here. Man, he went to the best universities. He was a superhero in their minds. Then one day, he hears about this Christianity thing. Wait, what? Yeah, 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 the Messiah showed up. Wait, our Messiah? Yeah, 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 his name's Jesus. He's a, he was over in Nazareth. It's not important anyway. So all his believers and everything, they're all getting all crazy. And they're starting to say, oh, well, Jesus has grace and he's going to take you to heaven. And, and you know what? This whole legalism thing is not necessary. And, and you don't have to do all the law. Paul's like, he's messing with God? My God? No, I don't think so. All of a sudden he is infuriated. 
to the point that he determines that his new life goal is to crush this horrid rebellion called Christianity. So he's hell-bent on destroying them. He's on his way to Damascus when all of a sudden he gets struck by a bright light. He's blinded. But in the meantime, a voice comes to him. And later on, Jesus personally sees him, reveals himself to him. And he says, Saul, what are you doing? Who are you? I guess that's our problem, isn't it, buddy? You don't even know my voice. You don't even know who I am. You're so strong for me, are you? You sure? Because you're killing my kids, and I'm not all right with that. Do you understand if you hurt my children, you hurt me? Paul was blinded. He was led by hand until somebody else could pray over him, and like scales fell from his eyes for the first time. He saw that the way he was living was not right. Let me ask you this. Are you Saul or are you Paul? Are you so fired up for God, but you're a jerk to everybody? You know all the information. You got it backwards and forwards. You know your Bible, you'll get there faster than the pastor, remember? You know how it goes. You know everything. You know all this and that. And you're Mr. Theological Systems. And you know all this stuff. You've read more books. And everybody respects you, right? But you're a jerk. You have no love in your life. You have no love for other people. You are serving God, but he's not your friend. You do stuff for him. You do nothing with him. You are so passionate and so strong and so vehement about attending church and doing all the right things. And you're impacting no one but for negative. If Jesus was to call you on the phone today, would you even recognize his voice? That's what happened. And a man who was hyper-religious had to get saved. And he had to unlearn everything he knew. That guy's writing this letter. Paul, called by the will of God, is going, guys, I didn't want to do this. I was totally into Jewish culture. I didn't want to do the Christian thing. And you know what? Here's the other thing. God, in his great humor, decides to call me to the Gentiles. Seriously? Mr. Jew of Jews. I only like Jews. Dang it. And I got to go spend my entire ministry with non-Jews. That's lame. I'm not even cool in the non-Jewish community. Everyone looks at me and they're like, well, he's kind of short. I'm like, I get it. You know, his nose is kind of funky. I know. In the Jewish culture, I'm cool. Out here, I'm not cool at all. And that's what God calls me to? God, why would you do that? Oh, that's right. This guy was so passionate, but he said, you know what? I'm not out here for me. This is not my idea. I was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And they're like, apostle? Oh, you mean you were sent out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all apostles, Paul. No, you don't get it, dude. You know the 12 that hung out with Jesus? Yeah, the apostles. That's who I'm talking about. Those guys, yeah, Paul, they were with Jesus on earth. They were commissioned by him personally. They had miracles. Hold up. I saw Jesus. He commissioned me personally. I do miracles. If you dare try to tell me that somehow Peter and the crew are doing more for the kingdom of God, let me remind you this. 
I have been beaten. I have been stoned. I have been shipwrecked. I have been naked and cold. I have been persecuted. So as far as this whole game of there's some superheroes out there called apostles, let me tell you this. I'm an apostle. When I talk, I'm talking for God. Pay attention. That's pretty hardcore. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Remember in the story, I mentioned that there was a guy named that. Is it the same guy? Probably. No, I'm sure there was a ton of Sosthenes out there. I don't know. Like when you go to get keychains at the stores, like Sosthenes is everywhere, right? On the little license plates. I mean, it was a very common name at the time in that area, but why would they mention it to where they knew him very well? Last time we heard about him, he was the next Jewish synagogue leader. He got beat publicly. I would imagine after that severe public beating, he's probably like, I don't like this thing anymore. <laughs> Paul, what do you got going on? That means if it's the same guy, then Christianity has now pulled out Crispus, the first synagogue leader, and Sosthenes, the second synagogue leader. No wonder they hate Paul. He's having this massive effect on the entire city. He's mentioned here because he's a partner of Paul in the ministry, and it's possible that he is Paul's secretary. Paul doesn't write his own letters with his own hand. He dictates them to somebody, and they write it out. That's what likely what's happening with Sosthenes. At the end of this book, you'll see that he writes only one paragraph in his own hand. It moves on to the church of God that is in Corinth. Notice he didn't say to the Corinthian church. To the church of God. There is no multiple churches. There is one church. It just happens to be, oh, there's a location in Corinth, there's a location in Ephesus, there's a location, right? Because he said, this is God's church, this isn't man's church. We're going to spend a huge amount of time in the remaining year talking about the fact that we are not in competition with any other church, but this is a kingdom movement, that God is discipling the region. He just happens to have a whole lot of houses here. To the church of God that is in Corinth, remember they're filled with a bunch of baby Christians that are completely whacked. They don't know what they're doing. They're screwing up. They're locked inside a Vegas mindset. Literally, Paul is going to rebuke them for committing sin that the world even doesn't do. Now, that's intense. If you can have... I'm not going to... I'm not going to dare you guys. Okay, but if you, if you can commit a sin where the world's like, dang, dude, I wouldn't even do that. And, and your church is known for that... That's pretty insane. In this messed up, crazy, hyper-sexualized, weird, schism church, how does he describe them? Look at the next line. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word means declared holy in God's sight. Being made into the image of Jesus Christ by a process of the Holy Spirit. Called to be saints. Their identity is they are holy because Jesus made them holy. They did not become holy by good works. They were deemed holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all of us, all the believers in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Master and Savior, both their Lord and ours, grace to you. Grace to you and peace. Grace means may God's favor fall upon you. I know you don't deserve it. 
But the grace that he has poured out on you, his kindness, his love, his blessing, even though you're a complete mess, grace to you. May peace be upon you. Shalom, not just an absence of a nervous heart, but everything is right in your world with God and with man. Every commentary I read said the exact same thing. Notice the order of the words. Grace, then peace. Why? Because you don't have peace if you don't have grace. If in your life you are consistently struggling with animosity and bad relationships and constant problems, we have a grace problem. When grace is right, then peace is sure. May grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Really, Paul? Because they're causing you an awful lot of trouble. You're about to come wreak havoc in their world. You sure you thank God for them? I can answer you as a pastor. I believe the answer is 100% yes. Why? Because no matter how difficult your children are, you love them desperately. And I will tell you that any pastor worth his salt loves his congregation deeply from the heart. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched. Do you know what the word enriched means? It means you were loaded. Not physical finances. But you were oversupplied. With what? In every way you were loaded in him. In all speech, in all knowledge. God's given them everything they need to know. He has given them the ability to speak on his behalf, their testimony. And three times in the Greek, the same word is used, all, 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 or every, every, every. There is no lack here. They are over-equipped. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, meaning you guys were saved. That is proof that everything is legit and God is present among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. What do you mean gift? Well, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. That's probably what he's talking about. What's a spiritual gift? It's a supernatural enablement to do something that you would not normally do for the purpose of building up the body or advancing the kingdom of God. Do you have a spiritual gift? Absolutely you do. Will we be talking about it a lot this year? Yes, we will. They were not lacking in any spiritual gift. Here's what I need you to understand and something that really made a difference to me. God did not have his Holy Spirit impart gifts on the mature, but on the believer. What that means is, Here you have a super, super immature church, and they have a ton of spiritual gifts. Gifts are not doled out to those once you do everything right, and it's a little carrot that he's dangling out. Oh, yeah, so you know what? Get holier, get holier, get holier. Do it right, do it right. All right, there you go. That's not it. Flat out, he empowers them with spiritual gifts, even in their immaturity. And you watch one of the most hyper-gifted churches is a mess. They're all over the place. There's no, there's no theological foundation yet. There is no maturity baked in. They're going crazy and causing chaos. Why would he give them gifts? Because he's loading his kids with more than they need. 
because someday they will be mature. He'll make sure. It says, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming, who will sustain you to the end. Some of you need to underline that because you're afraid that as you look at yourself, you know you're not consistent, you know you're not faithful, you know you're going to bail out on Christianity. Well, guess what? You're not in charge. And he will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our lord jesus christ you know what that word guiltless means free from accusation do you know what satan means the accuser satan's got nothing on the children of god why because of the grace of god therefore he can go god you know exactly that guy right there you know what he did i know what he did i got it recorded he's a mess he's a loser and god would go yep saw that paid for it we're done Yeah, but she, I know, paid for it. Yeah, but he, I know, paid for it. On the day of the revealing of Jesus Christ, there is no judgment over our sin because there is no sin present in the eyes of God for his children. We are free from accusation and Satan has nothing on us. Some of you need to bake that one into your spirit, yeah? Who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you go, there's no way that's going to happen. Verse 9, God is faithful. Because he gets his stuff done. When he says it is so, it is so. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that you are necessary, you are overgifted, and Bridgeway is ready to rock. It is that we have everything we need because he has equipped us with things that we need. I would suggest to you that the majority of our gifting lies dormant. That nobody is willing to wake it up. Nobody's willing to exercise it. Nobody's willing to utilize it. There are gifts and abilities that have been put into your life that you are to use for the kingdom of God, but you can't figure out how. We're going to try to figure out how. But once we start operating on all cylinders, once we start doing the things that God built us to do, once we start emerging in our design, watch out. Because God's going to start doing things. Doing things that are missed that might well blow our minds. Do not be an observer, be a participant. Amen? Let's close in prayer and I'll give you the final challenge. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your beautiful church. Lord, when you talk about the bride of Christ and you refer to folks like these, I get it. Lord, when I walk up here on stage and I look out into the congregation, I see a beautiful face staring back at me. That God, with all our craziness and our dysfunction and our weirdness, you have made us beautiful. We are sanctified. We are holy. We are called to be saints. Lord, may our living catch up with our calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's your final challenge this week. I want you to add to the list that you just started. I want you to write down all the things that you're good at. I want you to make sure that it gets all nailed down there. Then I want you to go through that list and ask yourself this. Why aren't you using that for the kingdom of God right now? What's stopping you? I want you to grab one of those and I want you to make it happen. Use it for the kingdom of God.